Hello and welcome to Impressions America. I'm Simon, and with me as always are my co-hosts, Toby and Bon. Hi guys. Hi Simon. Hey Simon. With all the political discourse happening at the moment around the Supreme Court ruling on Roe v. Wade and how the Democratic Party have responded to the ruling, we thought we'd dig into the Democratic Party itself and discuss how they've fared with the, the challenges that they faced. Uh, and I'm delighted to say that to do this, we have a special guest um, joining us today. Ian Saxine is a visiting uh, assistant professor of history at Bridgewater State University in Massachusetts, author of the book Properties of Empire, and host of the public history uh, podcast, Mainly History, which our very own Vaughn appeared on last year. Ian, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, Ian, as, as well as everything else I mentioned above, you also teach and study the American political parties. So clearly doing an episode on the Democratic Party is very much within your wheelhouse. Can you start us off by presenting your theory on the Democratic Party to us, and then we'll get into things further from there? Sure. Uh, so, uh, and I should be humble here. This is certainly not uh, a, a theory subscribed to only by me. This I, I came by it, honestly, by reading smarter people than myself. And I should say, uh, I am a, a Democrat, as uh, I think most Americans who understand how our political party system works um, and don't like fascism and dumpster fires and stuff end up being by default. Um, so my argument here, uh, is not that we shouldn't be making fun of the Democrats for constantly scoring own goals um, and being the political cockups that they uh, periodically are, right? A hundred percent, by all means, I will join you for that. Uh, but um, when we talk about the Democrats, it seems like their critics uh, oftentimes fall victim to the kind of navel-gazing uh, American exceptionalism that many people associate with American boosters, uh, even even American lefties who are are quick to sort of you know uh, make fun of Americans for being obsessed with themselves, will then turn right around and only talk about the Democrats in the context of the United States and not the rest of the world. And if you look at the industrialized world more broadly, center left parties. Uh, and some center-right parties, but definitely center-left parties have, by and large, been doing terribly in the 21st century at the polls. Um, and so if we look for comparison, if you say, well, uh, you know, I'm not happy with the Democrats' performances, uh, labor in Britain, uh, I won't need to elaborate on that very much, of course, uh, but the Socialist Party in France, uh, I believe after um, Hollande's uh, time in, uh, in office, uh, they weren't even, they didn't even make the top two in the last uh, couple election cycles. Uh, in Japan, a big tent conservative party has basically run the country since 1955. Uh, in Germany, since the, uh, since the start of the 21st century, the, the Christian Democratic Union, their version of like the Tories or the Republicans, uh, has run the country since uh, from 2005 to 2021. Uh, that was Angela Merkel. Even in Canada, which did have a center-left governing party for much of the 20th century, 
the they finally seemed to lose their grip in the 21st century. And Stephen Harper and the conservatives ran the country from 2006 to 2015. Uh, and even though uh, outsiders are swooning over Justin Trudeau, his party now has a minority government in parliament. Now, in contrast, the Democrats, as much as everybody whines that they're they're bad at winning votes and they're unpopular, they have won the popular vote eight out of the last nine presidential elections, which is a record-breaking streak in United States history. Now, yes, we have a uh, an electoral college system, and it is rather uh, malapportioned to privilege big square states that don't have a lot of people in them. And so uh, thanks to that, they have not won the presidency quite so many times. But if we're just talking about getting votes here, right? Uh, now, when we're looking at why this is happening around the world instead of just in the United States, the, uh, the problems faced by center-left parties, what we really see here is uh, what scholars have kind of called the diploma divide, where in the industrialized world, politics is divided along education, uh, specifically college education, um, alongside older indicators like income and race and religion for determining partisanship. And so since the 21st century, issues like environmentalism and immigration have created these education-based cleavages. And it's really a numbers problem. If your party is the party that draws support primarily from college-educated folks, in most countries, most voters don't have a college degree and you're just going to be disadvantaged. And as we'll see, that's basically what's happened uh, around the industrialized world. And so the Democrats have actually been uh, the exception to that rule in the sense that uh, they have managed to draw a significant or retain, sorry, a significant amount of support from non-diploma holding voters of all races uh, throughout the 21st century. Now, the Democrats' problems have come from the fact that uh, overwhelmingly, uh, after Obama's second term victory in 2012, white voters without a college degree have broken heavily towards the Republicans. But in doing so, this is them behaving more like their counterparts elsewhere in the world rather than some sort of uniquely American phenomenon. So if we're going to blame the Democrats for what happened in 2016 uh, and afterwards, and again, I'm happy to make fun of the Democratic you know, strategy as well. Um, that doesn't account for the rest of the world. Um, so to refine this just a bit, uh, also when talking about uh, U.S. coalitions, the, the standard view of U.S. politics is that the civil rights revolution of the second half of the 20th century, so of course for African-Americans, also women, uh, gay rights, uh, other minority groups, that this was still the most important feature defining how Democrats and Republicans compete, um, that this explains why non-white voters have voted and will stay Democrat. But since the 21st century, uh, we can see uh, that's more complicated. Um, and so uh, I'm going to, I don't know, would you like me to continue with, uh, with further pro-Democrat uh, argument here, or do you wish to immediately jump in with your uh, exceptions? So I, I guess that the question I had for yourself, Ian, uh, just mm -hmm. to start this all off, 
is that when you were talking about the comparatively uh, the Democratic Party are doing better than, say, what's happening in the UK or, or Germany or, or France or other places like that have, have been recently, though I think Germany did actually go centre-left in, in 2021. They did yeah. go. They finally did. You're absolutely yeah. right. So when you look at, look at those other uh, nations, when, when they vote, one of the things you can see is, is a breakdown is that there's simply more parties to vote for. So in this the UK, for instance, you have the Lib Dems and Labour. And so purely on a populist vote, point of view if you just combined those votes up they would be more than the conservative party for instance same mm-hmm. with in, in in germany you have like a green party which i think finished third from what I, from when i was reading um so I, I guess the question i would have for you is how much when you're looking at these things can you take into account both for good and for bad the fact the democratic party what well, america is essentially a, a two votes a two-party system mm-hmm. and the democratic party has both the advantage of having everyone under one umbrella, but also the disadvantage of there being such um, different different views between those who are centre or maybe even centre-right um, who hold elected office within the Democratic Party, and then those further left who are trying to um, bring back the Democratic Party to the, the left ways that it maybe had more so in the 20th century pre, um, pre-Reagan, for instance. Right. Ah, I'm glad you bring that up. So, okay. So I'll, I'll address several, all those points. So starting with the, the multi-party versus the two party system. you're absolutely right. Um, and as I'm sure you've, as I'm sure your listeners are aware, the U S has the two party system for the unsexy first past the post presidential system reasons, not because people haven't tried to have other parties. Um, so my, my argument is more about the level of control that the sort of center left has been able to exert over uh, over policy and the political process, right? And so by at least parties, fundamentally, they exist to control government, right? And then to do stuff. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of constitutional reasons in the American system why change is difficult and why progressives have a systemic difficulty getting, uh, getting their uh, their goals passed into law, uh, and most of that is, of course, not their not their own fault. And so that's a that's a separate issue, right? Um, but in terms of so in terms of these multi party systems versus the two party systems, I would still say if the uh, so the point being though so yes, if you look at uh, for example in in the UK uh, labor. Uh, labor has lost ground. I mean, the Lib Dems have not done particularly well. And I know it's it's also, as, as you well know, of course, in, in Britain, uh, there's the, the tricky math and geography of strategic voting based on what riding you're in. Um, and, you know, the Lib Dems struggle that their coalition, for example, I believe is particularly inefficiently distributed in terms of where they live. Um, but that said, the, uh, you know, the Labour Party, if we're going to, the Labour Party has had a hard time retaining its voters who've either gone to the Conservatives or they've gone to the uh, the Scottish Nationalist Party uh, or they've gone elsewhere. And a number of them have gone to either more uh, left-wing parties or more populist parties or sometimes to the right. Um, and in this case, I'm not, uh, I'm certainly not here to argue that uh, left-wing parties are bad. I don't have a problem with them. Uh, I think sometimes they can be quite good. Um, 
but when looking at certainly in the United States, we just don't have the numerical support for a truly left wing party uh, as much as it would bring me personal joy. Um, and when you look at in some nations like in France, uh, the left wing, uh, you look at, um, oh, what's his face? Uh, Mélenchon uh, with uh, uh, France uh, uh, insoumise. Um, Right. You look at the kind of stuff that they're doing that goes way left wing populist. Uh, and this, uh, in a way, you can you can view the rise of uh, the um, Mélenchon left as, as really an indictment of, of the French center left. The fact that, that you know, uh, a, a repudiation of their policies. Hang on. I derailed my own train of thought there. I'm sorry. Sorry. Would you mind restating the first part of your question for me and all when you're looking at this? from a more academic standpoint and you're, you're trying to compare comparatively how the democratic party are mm -hmm. doing um, uh, yes. both on a success level and just as an institution level how 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 do you kind of compare ah, thank you you've got a, a okay. two-party system compared to a multi-party system right. so okay this is a good point so looking within the united states a good comparison would be actually the democrats and the republicans uh in 2016 and beyond. So in the United States, usually what happens is instead of uh, a new uh, a new movement of populists or, or activists dissatisfied with an established party, uh, sometimes they'll try and form a third party, but usually they will they will rather quickly take over one of the two major parties. Uh, and that's what they've done. Uh, for the most part, since uh, since the populists in the late uh, in the late nineteenth century, so in in the run up to two thousand and sixteen, uh, the Republicans and Democrats both both faced major challenges to their their existing uh, party leadership in the form of Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders. And I'm in no way making any sort of moral or policy equivalence between them, but basically both Sanders and Trump ran, if we're going to uh, summarize their platforms on the on the platform of your party has failed you and you should vote for me if you don't like the other guys, but you also can't stand the existing Democrats or Republicans. Right. So Donald Trump got up there during the debates. And besides all the all the extreme things he said that, that made the headlines, the, the most important things that he said from the perspectives of, you know, students of parties is he said the Iraq war was stupid uh, and we never should have invaded Iraq. Um, and I'm going to, I'm not going to touch entitlements and uh, because they're popular and everybody's going to get great, beautiful healthcare. Now, if you're a Republican in 2015, you're not supposed to say those things. If you're running to be the banner uh, carrier of the Republican Party. And he won the nomination anyway. OK, Bernie Sanders ran against Hillary Clinton. Uh, right. Uh, most famously. And despite uh, despite various, uh, you know, hand waving and, and concern among some of his fans that there was, you know, shenanigans or whatever, there's a really unsexy reason why Hillary Clinton won the nomination in 2016 and Bernie Sanders did not. She was a Democrat and he was not. And the best way to predict who voted for Hillary Clinton versus Bernie Sanders is if you were a registered Democrat who uh, you voted for Clinton. If you were somebody who voted in the Democratic primary and were not a registered Democrat, you voted for Sanders. In 2016, most Democrats were 
happy with the Democratic Party brand because the Democratic Party brand was and still is to a considerable degree still associated with various stuff that its voters liked. The Republican Party was not. And that's why Donald Trump won the nomination. Now, you know, ironically enough, he was able to fail his way into the White House in 2016. That's a different story, right? Um, but the point is, uh, the success of Hillary Clinton in 2016 was less of a victory for herself and more of a victory for just the Democratic Party brand. And so we see there um, the enduring, if, if we were going to look at the Democrats compared to sort of elsewhere in the world, um, potentially uh, Sanders might have won if the Democratic Party bland brand was less healthy in 2016 and 15. Again, uh, there's a good point. There's a good argument to be made about whether you know Clinton herself was a good standard bearer for the party, uh, but that's a separate issue than uh, how is the sort of center left political party brand doing. Uh, and then Joe Biden in 2020, personally, uh, I'm very, uh, I'm kind of ageist. I don't want my party to be led by a gerontocracy. I was not a fan of Biden uh, or Sanders. But from the, again, the perspective of the health of a center-left coalition, uh, you could really interpret Joe Biden's victory in the Democratic primaries in 2020 as party leaders, or, sorry, party voters deciding to support generic Democrat against Donald Trump. And that's how most people viewed it. It's not that I love Joe Biden, they said, it's that he's a generic Democrat. And what was his ideology? He was a career Democrat. And he would do what the mainstream of the Democratic Party wanted. And for most Democratic voters, that was enough. And I'm not saying, again, that that was the only thing uh, powering uh, Biden's victory in the, in the primaries in, uh, in 2020, uh, but that was arguably the, the most important. And Bernie Sanders, the biggest problem with his campaign, um, even beyond the idea that like he was coded as too far left, is the message of his campaign is that the Democratic Party uh, has done nothing for you, voters. Uh, there are a bunch of fuck-ups. Listen to me. Um, and for large numbers of Democratic primary voters, especially Black voters living in the South, uh, the only politicians and the only political party uh, who has been responsive to their, uh, to their wishes, and by the way, who is made up of their friends and neighbors, well, that's the Democrats. And that was still a popular brand. Now, we'll see if the Democrats manage to ruin that uh, this year and in the, in the future, but at least for now. Okay, now there was a second part of that question, and I, uh, I managed to go, to go on. So I'll, uh, what was the second part of that? Um, oh, think... getting back to the mid-century. Yes, so I, I suppose comparatively, so one of the things I mentioned to start was that the Democratic Party, unlike European parties, which... You know, there are multiple left or center left parties. So those who, I don't know, wish to go to the Green Party in the UK can do so and, and vote, even if they know they're not going to win, they can always potentially get an M M their local MP in, in, in the Green Party, potentially. Whereas the Democratic Party has to kind of house people who are center right, center, center left, yes, and far left. So, okay. I, 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 so the question would be kind of how, how, if, how much of an advantage and disadvantage is it to the Democratic Party to have to deal with that broader spectrum? Ah, yes. So that is that is a true disadvantage. And this is where uh, I think it's important to actually salute the Democratic Party 
for the fact that it is today um, a less repellent big tent organization to be a part of than any point in its entire history, uh, including during whenever, if you, if you want to find its golden age of it's doing things that you like uh, and you're mid-century scholars. So yes, I love the New Deal. Um, you know, I love Give Him Hell Harry Truman. Um, I'm a fan of, of Medicare, uh, all the rest of that stuff, whatever you want to do. You didn't say you're a fan of Lyndon. Right? I'm a fan, fan of what? You didn't say a fan of Lyndon. You said a fan of Medicare. Of Medicare. But you know what? I Lyndon, you know what? Uh, if we need more tough talking chief executives who pass civil rights while taking a dump uh, or, you know, are, berate Congress to pass civil rights while sitting on the toilet and all the rest. Yes. yes. Uh, all that stuff. And but if you're so, willing to assassinate the president to take over, then absolutely, that's what. No, clearly, sorry. obviously, uh, obviously. Uh, and by the way, that is another good sign of the Democrats' good health. The fact that Oliver Stone um, is not a major figure in the Democratic Party uh, or Sean Penn or the other, like whenever people try and compare the two parties, uh, that is, we have, there are plenty of kooks in the United States who will stand left of center. They just don't have a lot of purchase in the Democratic coalition. I don't even need to say anything about the Republicans. We'll just leave it there. So uh, one thing needs to be said, uh, in the United States, I think uh, something that has been distinctive about American politics until recently is that by design from their inception during the 1820s and 1830s, American political parties, both of them, and the Democrats are the oldest continually operating political party in the entire world, full stop. Um, and uh, this is, uh, if we're gonna credit one person for this, it should be Martin Van Buren, uh, who was a New York state political machine operator who uh, he already, he viewed political parties as a way of binding together the nation rather than dividing it over uh, what he already viewed as a, a potential problematic issue, slavery. In the he 18th, also interned for Joe Biden when Joe Biden was. First <laughs> it's true. It's true. <laughs> uh, absolutely right. Uh, Joe Biden. I believe that's uh, one of the I think that's one of the people Joe Biden mentions in his autobiographies. And when he talks about hanging out with Corn Pop down by the pool. Corn Pop is Martin Van Buren. Um, so <laughs> uh, Martin Van Buren, though, he uh, he decided he came up with this idea and others that, OK, what we're going to do is we're going to have big political parties that are not identified with region or ideology, okay, and they're going to talk about horse tradey things like where to build a road and where we should have a tariff, and they're going to combine recent Irish immigrants with uh, asshole, uh, rapey southern planters. I believe that's the, the technical term uh, for these types, <laughs> right? Um, and they're all going to be in a big party, and um, we're, we're not going to say anything bad about slavery, but we're not going to, we're going to try to not talk about slavery too much. Uh, and then the Whigs followed suit, um, the, the Whigs with an H, they just didn't do it as well. And they had a bad, they had a tendency of, of, of voting for really old, uh, presidential candidates who, who died as soon as they took office. Uh, so knock on wood that that, that won't happen. We'll see. So anyway, uh, but since then American political parties, since the age of, of Van Buren and Andrew Jackson, uh, they, they by and large followed that where the parties had 
really hodgepodge coalitions. And so whether you were a Republican or Democrat uh, depended on what immigrant group you were a part of, which religious denomination you were, uh, how much you like to drink, what you did for a living, uh, oftentimes your thoughts on uh, how, how few rights Black people should have. Uh, and for a time, the Republicans were pro-civil rights, et cetera, um, and a bunch of other issues. But uh, very, but the, the parties did not divide. They did not have a liberal party and a conservative party. Uh, and the, it was FDR who actually was, was the first Democratic Party leader who really tried to make it an ideological left-wing party. And this was when, after he won re-election in 1936, basically everybody uh, except for, uh, oh, what was the guy, the guy who he beat in 1936? Uh, Alf Landon. Alf Landon won about five votes for president. And I think that didn't even include his mom and dad, you know? Um, <laughs> and so basically uh, FDR, uh, FDR having won, you know, everybody said, okay, actually the Democrats should be a liberal party and all of the conservatives should, should be purged from the party. And it didn't work too well, uh, but that was the first kind of push. So gradually in the 20th century though, uh, conservatives began to increasingly congregate in the Republican Party, but not exclusively. And so the uh, infamously, the New Deal coalition in the 1930s, in which everybody except Alf Landon was a Democrat, meant that, um, what's his face, George Wallace and Bull Connor and all these segregationalist uh, lynch happy ass wipes were Democrats. Uh, and so too were uh, Richard Wagner uh, and Martin Luther King Jr. Um, and all these other people who, you know, by and large, we, we like, right? And so that sorting took a long time to sort out. So why am I bringing this up here now is that that sorting took a really long time. And it is just not the case that the parties did a really neat and tidy switch that even a lot of libs like to say that happened, that you just sort of snap your fingers and you pick a date like 1964 with Barry Goldwater or something like that. And then all the conservatives and racists went Republican and all the, all the, all the liberals and less racist people went Democrat. It just didn't happen. And so uh, for the Democratic Party, uh, a majority of congressional districts were represented by Democrat, conservative white Democrats in the South until the election of 1994, the famous Republican Revolution that you no doubt talked about during your Clinton, your Clinton trilogy. Um, but there were still a lot of holdouts that were around on the endangered species list until the wipeout of 2010. And so uh, what has happened is uh, uh, for virtually its entire history and every governing coalition of Democrats until this one right now had to rely on large numbers of downright conservative Democrats who were these legacy holdovers from the days of this ticket splitting moderate, uh, no longer segregationalist, but definitely conservative and in no way socially liberal Democratic Party. And so uh, the Democrats, just in order to have these governing coalitions, which sometimes were big, uh, they had they had to get the votes of a lot of people who make Joe Manchin look like an absolute, uh, they make him look like a hippie. They make him look like he should be marching in the streets saying justice for George Floyd. Uh, so let's look at 2010, 
Okay, when the Democrats passed the Affordable Care Act uh, and more diehard uh, left-wing people rightfully point out the flaws in the Affordable Care Act and the fact that there was not a more public option. Well, before the, before, when the Democrats passed it, when they had uh, 59 and briefly 60 votes in our Senate, which magically gets around our stupid filibuster rule, but we, I know you've talked about that, that's fine. Uh, the Democrat votes, uh, the Democrats relied for their votes on two senators from Arkansas, two senators from West Virginia, two senators from North Dakota and Montana, and then one senator each from Alaska, South Dakota, Nebraska, Indiana, and Louisiana. Now, in 2020, virtually none of these seats have a Democratic senator, and we don't have a prayer of having one in the foreseeable future, uh, barring some kind of political earthquake where, I mean, I don't know. I mean, quite honestly, you know, if the January 6th attack on the Capitol uh, didn't condemn the, the Republicans to being like a new Federalist Party after the Hartford Convention. I don't know what will. So anyway, the point is, what do you think Democrats from North Dakota and Nebraska and Indiana were going to be like or in Arkansas? Yeah, real conservative. And so Obama and Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer had to corral an entire caucus full of Joe Manchins in order to do anything. Right. Um, and so uh, the point is, though, Democratic majorities, uh, to be competitive, relied on large numbers of self-identified conservatives and moderates. It's only recently that self-identified liberals even made up a majority of Democratic voters. So the Democrats just can't be the kind of ideologically cohesive uh, political party that the Republicans can be to the same degree, because their voters don't want it. Um, as much as I wish they did, because quite frankly, uh, if you were to sort of pin my ideologically down, I'm my ideology down. I think Elizabeth Warren, policy wise, is great. Um, it just so happens that um, she is she does not represent uh, overall policy wise the preferences of uh, a majority of Americans on a, a number of issues, not all of them. Okay. Um, so when we're looking at why have the Democratic majorities been not more, uh, not done more that say people like right now, Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders wanted, that's the answer. That's the answer. Uh, and the same with the majority in the House. Um, and so when we're looking at the Democrats today in 2020, even though they have very slender majorities in the House, a majority in the House, and in the Senate right now, we have a 50-50 split. Uh, this is the longest time in United States history that a party has held a governing trifecta that is that depended on a 50-50 split in the Senate. Uh, the last time that happened, I, I recall you had a trilogy on George W. Bush. Did you talk about the Jim Jeffords uh, episode of 2001? It's a good question. I don't think we did, did we? Okay, so... Um, okay, so this is this is... Vastly important. So when people were saying, okay, Joe Biden needs to go down there and grab Joe Manchin um, and just give him a wedgie and tell him, listen up, asshole, if you don't do what I want to do, um, I'm going to go to your state and I'm going to say, hey, everybody, Joe Manchin is the biggest dirtbag ever. And I'm going to go over to his houseboat and I'm going to throw a party uh, and I'm going to stay out way late and I'm going to keep you up at night and screw you, Joe Manchin. Well, guess what? Uh, George W. Bush. Uh, 
uh, faced the same situation in 2001. He had extremely slender majorities. He also didn't win the popular vote, but let's let's leave that to the side. Okay, he had 50 Republicans and he had a slim majority in the House. And he said, I'm going to pretend like I really won the presidential election and I'm going to do all these conservative things. And so Jim Jeffords, who was a liberal Republican from Vermont, uh, when before that party sorting was finished, uh, Jim Jeffords said, like fun you are, um, and you're going to try and do these things that I think are bad for the environment and these stupid tax cuts. No. And Jim Jeffords switched his party ID to independent, and he gave control of the Senate to Democrats after only a few months of George Bush's presidency. And the Republicans lost control of the Senate. And the only reason they got it back was because um, 9-11 happened. Um, and for the only time in American history, control of one of the houses of Congress, uh, the president's party gained control of one of the two houses of Congress in a midterm election. Uh, it had never happened before. 9-11 um, had never happened before. Um, and the Republicans won narrow control of the Senate. But had that not happened, the uh, Bush's, uh, Bush's White House pretending that it had real control of the Senate backfired in an ugly way. The, the Democrats have zero leverage over Joe Manchin, zero. Um, Joe Manchin is my favorite. If you're a Democrat, Joe Manchin should be your favorite Democratic senator, not because of anything he does. I hate Joe Manchin. I hate him. But the problem is, is that if anybody except Joe Manchin sat in his stupid Senate seat, it would be a Republican. There is literally nobody. Jesus Christ could not hold that Senate seat as a Democrat in the year of our Lord, 2021, 2022. No way it's going to happen. So just by existing and breathing coal smoke filled air. Uh, and exhaling it into the Senate every single day, Joe Manchin allows the Democrats to confirm Joe Biden's judges. Okay. Now, Kirsten Sinema is a different matter, uh, although there's a really ugly tradition of psychoanalyzing every female politician who behaves in a way that we don't like. And I think some of it is kind of gross. Uh, but I freely acknowledge that Kirsten Sinema is a more peculiar, perplexing situation because Arizona is a genuine swing state. West Virginia, that would be like if there was a Republican who just kept winning in Massachusetts again and again and again, Senate cycle after Senate cycle for Republicans. That is what Joe Manchin doing in West Virginia is. There is no leverage they have over him. None. Nobody can beat Joe Manchin. Nobody. Uh, and he's probably going to lose at the end of this year. It's a free lunch. So anyway, um, the point being, yes, the Democratic, uh, the Democratic Party right now uh, is... Is, is temporarily in the in the short term, uh, Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin are why we can't have nice things. And there are some there are some some other things as well. But the bigger problem is there's a lot of big empty square states that vote really Republican. And in order to control the Senate, the Democrats have to win a lot of voters who are not liberal. The median Senate seat is five points more Republican than the popular vote at large, which means. In order to control the Senate, the Democrats have to have a pretty damn good year, right? Uh, and win a lot of voters who are not particularly liberal. So the Democrats are basically just playing without a net. The Republicans are playing are playing politics on easy mode. Uh, Democratic the Democratic majorities consistently depend on winning races in places like 
Montana. We still have a senator from Montana. We still have a senator from Ohio, even though we had our asses kicked there at the presidential level. We still have a senator from West Virginia. Um, and on and on and on. Um, so the Democrats have had to, the one constant in the Democratic Party has been that it has been a less cohesive, less homogenized party than the Republicans since the Civil War. Well, no, since its inception. The Democratic Party has always been full of, the. it's been this crazy quilt of very different interest groups cobbled together uh, for to achieve specific goals. Now, it just so happens that for much of the Democrats' history, those goals were repulsive, um, and they were very dependent on white supremacy, among other things. Now, the Democrats' goals are, by and large, uh, environmentalism and civil rights and the idea that there should be a safety net and the idea that, yes, government should uh, should regulate the, you know, the amount of poison, uh, the amount of poison that goes into our water uh, and that it should, you know, reg that it should have some regulation over, you know, how much the banks can screw you, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and yes, the the Reaganite neoliberal turn, the Democrats tacked to the center during that. And I am not a huge fan of that. But uh, if you're looking at like what were what was the Democrat, the Democratic Party was somewhat economically more Keynesian and more, uh, I think, palatable to all of our tastes in the mid 20th century. But it was also wildly more sexist. Uh, and way less liberal on a host of other issues that I don't think anybody would find accessible, uh, palatable rather. Um, and for the first time in American history, we have a, you know, uh, a political party that more than ever is united in its commitment to a genuinely pluralistic democracy in which power is shared by Americans of all gender expressions uh, and races and creeds uh, in which everybody has a fair shot economically. Uh, and yes, that also means uh, we still have Joe Manchin and these other things as well. But look at what the Democratic House majority has passed. It's a lot of good stuff. Election reform, uh, all, kinds of, uh, all kinds of stuff, uh, regulating prices in, in terms of medical goods and everything else. It's just the fucking Senate that won't do anything. All right, I'll stop there. I think I just wanted to add that uh, the Democrats do have a huge advantage with it being um, a two-party system, but yeah, this, these kinds of things are in flux because in Britain under Tony Blair, there was talk of subsuming the Liberal Democrats, which mm -hmm. decided not to do. It was certainly would made a bigger party, but at the time, the Liberal Democrats were pushing things like the Yellow Book, which was very, very conservative economically. And also the Liberal Democrats in 2010 joined the Conservatives. So in order for the Labour Party to be a bigger party that would win elections, that the, the party would inevitably have to become more, much more conservative and have the same problems as the Democrats. You're absolutely right. And that's, I mean, that's the, that's just the age old number problem of politics, right? Uh, you can either have a big tent and make compromises, or you can get everything you want and have a smaller coalition. Um, that, those are, that's just math, right? Um, and it's a, and parties are not, uh, parties are not the same thing as activists. And it's important that we not confuse the two. And activists are important components of coalitions uh, and they shouldn't be denigrated. Um, but parties are not inherently activists. Parties 
exist to gain and hold power. And activists are supposed to, you know, push parties to do stuff that by definition is usually not as popular um, as the activists would like. Sure. And I, I, I do get that. And that was very well argued um, defense of Democratic Party. I guess the, the question I would have back to you then is, why do the Democrats keep um, talking of things that they have no interest in actually uh, delivering on once they're voted in? So, for ah, instance, sure. oh, so oh, Obama running in 2008 and talking about how the first thing he would do would be codifying Roe v. Wade and, and how important that was to him and how abortion rights were important. And then as soon as he gets in, it said it wasn't of it was it was not of legislative importance as soon as he gets in. Uh, and sure. we have Nancy Pelosi, for instance, backing anti-abortionist uh, Democrats in, in Texas. And you can argue, yeah, okay, fine. The maybe, maybe I haven't studied it. Maybe that is the candidate most likely to win. I don't know. But oh sure, here's at, why. At, at this at the same time. Yeah. Why, why, why should we listen to a party which talks about one thing and then never does anything on it? Oh, absolutely. Um, and so, so first of all, uh, well, in 2008, uh, in terms of saying you want to do that, well, once the Democrats took power in 2009, he didn't have the votes. Uh, the Democratic sure. majority. So the, the whole all those Senate seats that I'm talking about, mm-hmm. those were all pro-life Dems. There are virtually no uh, anti-abortion and I, and I get that but w- why wasn't Obama then standing up and going I, I want to do this but I can't get it done why, why was he why was he turning around and saying it's not legislative like importance right now why, why that wasn't sounds he? that sounds better than admitting you can't do it and like all politicians he doesn't like nobody so the thing is people don't Americans have a real green lantern view of the presidency the idea mm-hmm. that if just you want to get it done, well, darn it, you're just going to get up there and you're going to get on the phone and talk these legislators ears off and invite them to dinner and do all that crap. And basically part of it stems from the cult of, of LBJ, the idea that he did this. Uh, and what this ignores the fact is that LBJ had, had just superhuman majorities uh, in both houses of Congress during his presidency. So he had a lot of leeway. Uh, and the Democrats, believe it or not, because of our because the filibuster had been reified into something that was in place for everything and not just its initial inception, which was in case of civil rights, break out the filibuster. Um, the Democratic majorities were slender. So that's part of it. But so part of it is uh, Americans don't like hearing the president say, I can't do this. And I the thing that always surprises my students and probably one of my hottest takes is that Hillary Clinton ran the most intellectually honest campaign in American political history in 2016. And that is why she lost. She knew she wasn't going to win the house. If she became president in 2016, she was smart. Okay. And so look at, listen to what she said about what she was going to do when she ran. And it was always this really small potato stuff. Why she didn't want to, she didn't want to run on stuff she couldn't do. And so her presidency, her her platform sounded depressing as hell because American politics, if you don't have the votes, is really depressing. And she lost. So this is why when people were like, Hillary, what are you going to do? And why are you going to be president? She would talk for like five minutes about a lot of little things she was going to do. Okay. That's why Obama didn't do that because Obama, 
uh, Obama campaigned, he made uh, technocratic pragmatism sound like a love note to America and like uh, and like Purple Mountain's majesty. If you look at what he actually said, he was not promising sweeping change. He was promising, hey, can't we all talk like reasonable adults and have milk and cookies and realize that this is all really stupid and we should stop talking about flag pins and everything else? Uh, that was Obama. Um, and so, yeah, Obama got into office and he was uh, and he realized, oh, I don't have the votes. Um, and like many presidents, he started out being woefully no presidents prepared for their job. Uh, and so <laughs> that's why he did that. So I, um, I do get that. But my counter to be Americans don't like it when presidents kind of make yeah. defeat. I would say women hate it more when they get denied abortion access. And so oh, sure. as, as a Democratic Party, surely what they should be doing is actually caring about their voters longer term. And so when when we have abortion or when America rolls back abortion rights and the first thing America or Americans here or Americans on the left here is, well, this means you have to get out and vote. It, surely this yeah. this has now become a ridiculous statement because when Americans when Americans do get out and vote, not only do they not get what they want, but if that if they then don't get what they want, it appears the Democratic Party aren't going to fight for them. And so well, when the I vast majority of voters, or sorry, the vast majority of Democrats even in 2008 and 2009 were not particularly uh, clamoring for and concerned with codifying Roe v. Wade into law. The Democrat, the, the Democratic... Uh, one of the problems of the Demo one of the strategic errors of the Democratic Party uh, and liberals in general is mistaking a blip in the mid 20th century for the longer arc of American history or the norm and assuming that the Supreme Court is their friend. And it historically has not been. Um, and so the Democratic Party has historically in our lifetimes been happy to point to the landmark decisions of the mid 20th century as precedent and not codify them into law. Because uh, in generally up until recently, that was overwhelmingly viewed by everybody as settled law. Uh, and the, uh, and of course the, um, the anti-abortion campaign uh, that really picked up steam toward the latter part of Obama's presidency in terms of his success uh, succeeded in, in overturning that. Now, I, I agree with you uh, that abortion is a central issue for uh, women's uh, and other pregnant folks' well-being. However, from a, one of the other things that surprises most folks is that from a partisan perspective, now this might change now, but until, let's just say this year, uh, voters opinions on abortion has not had a strong gender divide. Um, this surprises almost everybody, uh, especially those who are, are well aware who it disproportionately impacts. But I will say it again. Uh, a subset of women voters care deeply about abortion access. Uh, and if, um, However, abortion access as a self-identified issue for women self-identified as saying what they're voting for has historically not, in fact, been um, the case. Uh, in terms of how voters break down on how they support different issues, uh, one of the things that consistently surprises people who 
you know, study this for a living is how little of a gender breakdown there is on stated preference uh, preferences for abortion policy. Um, and often slightly um, to the majority of people who are against abortion are women in, in certain contexts, in certain countries, in certain states. And I want to be careful. I'm not trying to well actually any anybody who is upset about the current political situation or say it's not a big deal or you know, something like that. Uh, and of course, in a country of 330 some million, it contains multitudes, but yeah. So I would just say that um, the complaint now that the Democrats, uh, that, that Obama's chief political error was not using his political capital in 2009 to codify Roe v. Wade into law uh, because that's what his voters were clamoring for, or that was the big promise that people felt he betrayed them on. I think that is uh, that is uh, that is unfair hindsight in the sense that of all the people who were disappointed with Obama or leaving the Democrats over disappointment with what the Democrats did, the fact that the Democrats didn't codify Roe v. Wade in 2009 and 2010 is like reason number 507 on the list. Uh, and even though in hindsight, it looks regrettable from a human rights perspective, from a political perspective, I don't think that's a fair thing to criticize them on. You can criticize him on all kinds of stuff, not closing Guantanamo Bay, uh, not pushing harder for a public option in, uh, in the Affordable Care Act. Even passing the Affordable Care Act, the only reason uh, the Democratic senators who voted for it in the end did so is if uh, abortion was excluded from the Affordable Care Act. We've had the, um, oh God, uh, what's it called? It's named after a, um, I believe it starts with an H. There's a, there's a special clause in all US legislation that's been there since the 1980s that specifies no, uh, no federal funding will be used to, to pay for abortion. And keeping it there was the only way the Democrats were able to get enough votes to pass the Affordable Care Act to begin with. So the fact that the landmark legislation uh, that, rev that transformed American health care uh, and the American social safety net to a degree not seen since the 1960s, the fact that it didn't include abortion care was extremely lamentable in the view of myself and anybody who cares about these things. But from the, from the perspective of counting noses or the composition of the Democratic coalition in 2010, it is utterly, utterly predictable. And the uh, looking at what they had the votes to do and what they, as it is, the proof of the, of how, what on a, uh, if anything, the Affordable Care Act is proof that the Democrats actually care about certain things above winning. Uh, because they knew actually rant getting this thing through was probably going to cost them uh, the house uh, and, uh, and maybe more. And that this was going to be a, a loser for them in the midterms. But they did it anyway, because moving the ball down the field and passing legislation that matters when you have control of government is something that healthy political parties do if this is a central to their coalition. And Obama not just Obama, any Democrat who won in 2008 won on a promise to pass meaningful health care reform. Now, the exact parameters of it were somewhat vague because the American health care system was such a disaster that virtually anything would be an improvement. 
um, and the contours of why the Affordable Care Act improved the American healthcare system uh, versus what it left uh, unfixed are a separate issue. But it is unquestionable that uh, no, even it, it's it is now a, the new third rail, thanks to American politics being having a status quo bias. Uh, no Republican is going to be able to successfully get rid of not the Affordable Care Act, but the expectation that the federal government should do certain things to regulate uh, health insurance and the healthcare industry in a way that did not exist before Obama's election. Sure. Uh, and I, I do want to move on from the, the abortion stuff, but just sure. kind of very quick. Oh, and sorry, the Henry Queller thing. Uh, that was a you can quibble with that tactics. The, the boring reason why they supported him is his particular district. Uh, I don't, I think that they should have left him alone because he's kind of corrupt. Um, but the argument is the voters in his district by and large are not supportive of abortion rights. Um, and to compete in his district and to allow the Democrats to keep a majority in the house, which if they manage to do so is going to be by a frog's eyelash uh, they need people like Henry Queller there. Uh, and so that was a, um, I don't know, you can question their tactical judgment there. Uh, you can also look at all the places where Democrats hold serve at the state level, abortion rights are by and large safe at the state level and everywhere they don't, they're not. So if we're trying to compare the two political parties, you can quibble with some of their tactics, but there's just, you know, there's no equivalency. Sure. And the final point I'd have on this is just that when you look at abortion rights, I think that is a good example of how the Republicans and those on the right have thought uh, this is a long-term strategy and Democrats have yes. failed to do so. And as a result, you have, you know, the Mer Republicans essentially from the seventies onwards when they became a more sort of Christian right-wing enterprise and they became basically focused on trying to um, remove abortion rights and it's be more, um, tactical in approaches as far as getting local judges appointed and, you know, Supreme Court being, being where they want to get their power and, and that kind of thing. And I, I suppose the reason I go back to Obama is that you, you say that maybe it wasn't of the utmost importance to, um, to pass or codify Roe Ro v. Wade in 2008. And maybe that's the case. But when you have a presidential candidate in 2007 promising Planned Parenthood that the first thing he'll do is... Um, basically codify that and then he gets elected and then he says it's not of legislative importance you then see the knock-on in 2016 um sorry tw yeah 2016 with bernie sanders where part of that is because there is a anger at the democratic party for not being left enough and not caring enough about the things that they care about and i know you said that in, uh, when uh 2016 came about that that was a reject or that was a rejection specifically by black voters and the sort of center left people of a Bernie Sanders campaign in order to um, take in the sort of DNC approved Hillary Clinton type candidate. But I, I, I guess my counter to that would be the fact that um, we see a, a longer term play by Republicans sort of time after time, whereas Democrats appear to be sort of stuck in the mud and continuously falling back on sort of DNC stamped approved um, policies and still thinking they sort of exist in a land that doesn't exist anymore. And we'll get onto that more in a second. But sure. I, I think I think the abortion rights 
is a good example of something where the Democrats have time after time been kind of they've been caught lacking. And, you only and, to and just to stay on abortion, because uh, this is not just a, a failure to, uh, you know, waste political capital in 2009 on something that didn't seem under threat. There is also the failure of the, you know, Merrick Garland trying to get Merrick Garland in. Yes. McConnell's unprecedented refusal to hold a hearing. Correct. While they would hold hold hearings, you know, at, at different times when it was uh, Democrats. And then the failure to get uh, one of the Supreme Court judges, RBG, to, to quit. Mm-hmm. Correct. As well. So, yeah, there, there, are, there, are, there are genuine logistical failures. Absolutely. And that is, uh, those are real, those are real failures. Time. And those are those are just different than Obama breaking a promise. And I'm I'm happy to. Oh, yeah. Like those. They definitely have been slow at. And this is I this is a, very, a generational divide. If you look at I think one of the uh, AOC, I think, put this quite succinctly where she said the big difference between her and her more her older colleagues is she says, look, um, and she's. I think she was born in 84 or 85. She's basically, uh, she's roughly my age. And she says, uh, look, for my lifetime, we haven't had serious Republicans. And so we've always known what we're dealing with. And so like, we, we don't need to go through the motions of like pretending to take a Matt Gates type figure seriously. Um, and so, you know, she's of course willing to negotiate and settle for half a loaf. Uh, and that's something she doesn't get enough credit for. Uh, but the one thing is she's not, like Joe Biden constantly seemingly pining for or or hearkening back to a supposed earlier era of, quote, reasonable Republicans. Uh, And that's something that the Democrats definitely have a gerontocracy problem. Um, And that is undeniable. Uh, And that is certainly not a not part of me uh, defending them in terms of this sort of structural critique at all. Uh, they have serious problems tactically, strategically, and you know, wor- worst of all, I would argue, yes, their their uh, octogenarian leadership. So, just just on that, Vaughn, I think you've got some thoughts on the sort of appeasement approach by the Democrats over the twenty um, first century. Do, do you want to go into that a little bit? Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, and Ian, I have to say, you're making me a bit sympathetic towards Democrats and I'm resenting it a little bit. Um, <laughs> they're very also, they're uncool. They are uncool to support among lefties. Uh, but go ahead, yeah. go ahead. Go I, ahead. Well, you just, you really, you, you framed the modern Democratic Party in a way that I haven't thought of before in terms of the, the breakdown of conservatives and liberals that it, it used to be the same party so we're of course we're still kind of purging people and Manchin used to be a republican but found something to like in the democrats and that was probably yeah. the fact that there are no real definitions of what a democrat is um, about just the fact that if we want to pick who's the most embarrassing democrat in the senate in any given year and yeah, we have a bunch, Manchin, Cinema. How about uh, Bob Menendez, the Charlie Brown head, uh, headed uh, corrupt cartoon from New Jersey. But if you go back further, Robert Byrd was in the Klan in his youth. Um, and you keep going further back and the most embarrassing Democrat, yeah, is like people who chase black people out of their store with ax handles and all kinds of hideous stuff. Like, yeah. well, 
well into the 90s almost. It's terrible. So anyway, please go ahead. Yeah, it really is. And it really does frame a lot because we've talked a lot on impressions so many times in so many different contexts about the the social conservative shift in the late 70s and early 80s and the Reaganification of everything since then and how exactly the the like silent majority in quotes and the um, evangelical right have just played the Republicans like a fiddle to stick with their social ideas, even more than having any kind of semblance of an actual political ideology that would adhere to political ideology in the past. All of their stuff is pretty much just social of we're white and we have power. And that's enough for Republican voters. But for Democrats, they're Democrats are so wide ranging. They're they're everyone else, essentially, except for the very small groups of independents and people who are most inclined to vote Green Party or any of those sorts of things. So it really that really is good framing. And one of my points was going to be about messaging, like, what the fuck are they doing? They they can't, they can never respond to anything well, in an effective way. Like like CRT, for example, in 2020 with um the Virginia governor's race and um that guy, what's his name? Oh, Glenn Youngkin. Yeah. Glenn Youngkin, thank you. Um, when he came out with all of his critical race theory ads, the Democrats were caught so off guard because they they were like, we're talking about like policy and stuff. We're not talking about something that doesn't exist in schools. What are you talking about? And they just handed out books of beloved and said, I love this book. And it's like, what are you? That is the, not the right messaging to combat these well, yes. cultural wars. And, and what's Republicans his face? Winning. T- Terry Mc- well, okay. So first, I mean, Terry McAuliffe is absolutely a like manufactured creature of the DNC who bragged yeah. in his autobiography about taking his wife who had just given birth to their child in the car with him home from the hospital and stopping to go to a fundraiser. Um, <laughs> but okay. I will happily knock Terry McAuliffe. Terry McAuliffe is also the only, uh, the only person uh, since I believe the 1960s to win the governorship of Virginia when his own president's party held the White House. Did you know that every single time, except 2013, when Virginia votes for a governor, whichever party holds the White House loses the governorship every single time. So if you're just mm-hmm. going by every single time, except 2013, when Terry fucking McAuliffe managed to beat uh Ken Cuccinelli, who ran as a crazy anti-abortion uh, and anti-gay uh, politician, and Terry McAuliffe ran as a, yes, pro-choice, uh, pro-gay rights, uh, reasonable human being, and beat him, okay? Uh, so here's the thing. Uh, going just on the history, the Democrats were going to lose in Virginia in 2021. The president yeah. was unpopular. And Virginia had the highest rate of school closings of almost any state in the country. Um, And Virginia schools were closing, especially in 
places that were historically Republican, but have recently swung to Democrats, namely high education, high income white areas. Uh, and these people, uh, look, the city of like, I think Richmond just randomly closed their schools for about a couple a week in October, because they're, they said, I saw the announcement, they said, well, our, our faculty are really burned out. And so we're closing for a week. Uh, thank you. Um, like, imagine if you're a parent, who works or whatever mm -hmm. else, and your school does that, who are you going to blame? What are you going to do? Right? So of course, uh, and there were a lot of reasons the Democrats lost in Virginia, quite apart from no, absolutely. race there. So anyway, yeah, their messaging was stupid, but it's also important to note they were probably going to lose anyway. Uh, this is not absolutely. to excuse tactical errors, but we should, uh, we should also be like, this is why to get back to the, the party system, why it's dangerous for our system. If, you know, the Republicans are an illiberal, uh, fascist, aspirational, anti-democratic party, because in our system, one, some of the parties are each going to win sometimes. And every time there's a recession or whatever, you know, uh, the other party is going to get in. That's just how, that's how, that's mm -hmm. how a critical, a critical mass of voters behave. And so we can't afford to have the Republicans not be a governing safe party you know, quite apart from political disagreements. Um, it's just not the case. And so unfortunately, this is this is where we are. And so we have to, now the standard for the Democrats is you can never lose because look what happens if you lose, which is an extremely high bar. Um, and, yeah. you know, and they do send mixed messages. I mean, they're on the one hand, they're saying, yes, Trump is in a, a threat to democracy. And then the other, they're like, but we really want to do an infrastructure deal with them in 2017. Fuck you, Nancy Pelosi. Like, no, that was stupid messaging. That was terrible. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, uh, sorry, is this a swear friendly no. podcast? No, absolutely. Oh, okay. yeah. good, I just good. wanted to ask you a different question because I think you're all- Wait, can I, can I finish my yeah, question? Yeah, sorry, Vaughn, go yeah, ahead. Sorry, Toby. <laughs> sorry, Toby. Um, so- Yes, with that with that messaging, it's it's understandable from what you were framing that um, they they have to just appeal to so many other people, and it yes. it is heartbreaking, and it feels like you're just watching clowns every single time the Republicans are like, "But what about Dr. Seuss?" and the Democrats are like, "We're talking about infrastructure right now. What do you mean, Dr. Seuss?" And it's it's just everything is like Ross Perot with. George H.W. Bush in 92. It's just talking yeah. to someone who is clearly not going to respond on the same level that you are. So that really makes sense. But I really like thinking about the moment and the last 30 years widely with Democrats. What Simon was mentioning about appeasement is that we're in a very dangerous place right now, an extremely yes. dangerous place. You said if one of the parties is illiberal and anti-democratic right. and fascist, but they literally are. And we yeah. know that. Correct. And it's documented and it's been on prime time several times this summer of exactly how they are illiberal, anti-democratic fascists. So Axios, I don't know if you saw this, but Axios yesterday. Oh, published, I did. Plan F. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so for anyone who hasn't seen this yet, it's this executive order that Trump had drawn up in October 2020 uh, before the election. That was a plan to go into action almost immediately if he did secure the election or 
allegedly in quotes when he wins in 2024 and this executive order would be a complete purging of anyone who isn't a trumper in the federal government of up to 50,000 civil servants that he would fire and replace with sycophants for his party. So here's my thing right now is that the last six years especially have felt like the Democrats are just doing damage control. Like they're not putting through any new policy. They're not doing anything progressive. They're not doing anything. They're just trying to control the absolute damage that the Republicans are racking up because they're doing this so well. And that's unforgivable. But like with hindsight, we can look back to Al Gore conceding and say, why the fuck did you do that? Right. (laughs) You fucked everything. And that I was saying to Simon feels like appeasement. Like everybody looks back at Neville Chamberlain and says, oh, he shouldn't have, he shouldn't have appeased Hitler. Like appeasement's a terrible policy. Why would he do that? And he did it with, I mean, there are a lot of things you could say and a lot of angles you could take to analyze this, but one is that Neville Chamberlain implemented appeasement because he truly believed that it would contain the threat and he didn't know what was to come afterwards. And we can say that about Al Gore, sure. That was some appeasement that he let the Supreme Court say that George Bush won this case, even though he really, really disagreed. And I think his quote was something like the political rancor has to stop and he didn't want any more division. So he just let George W. Bush have the election. The Democrats right now, by not even carving out the filibuster and like forcing in any way through voting rights or a a federal law that would overturn some of these state laws that are really, really just going to fucking destroy the midterm elections if we aren't careful or like even the DOJ actually handing out um, charges and convictions to sitting senators and, and house representatives who literally aided and abetted the insurrection that we're watching in January, the January 6th committee hearings that all of there's so many people in the federal government right now who are still making our laws and deciding these things who tried to overthrow the government. Like what, what would you say about that? Because that's even beyond appeasement. That's just complete. Like, Oh, we're aware it's happening. We know exactly where it's going. We have these plans from Donald Trump now in that executive order plan. We know we're headed to a very, very, very fascist place in the next two years, if not sooner. And we really believe that the U.S. isn't going to actually make it to its 250th anniversary in 2026, but we're not going to do anything. You need to come vote, even though the election is rigged already with these insane voting laws in so many different states. Like, what do you say about that, of where we are right now? Okay, well, so... A couple of things. So I will start from where I kind of was before and I'll start with. Mm-hmm. So in terms of the Democrats, uh, what they've done or have not done. So the the unsexy, tragic near miss is that if we had, uh, and I know it's because the Democrats have 48 votes in the Senate to do all those things you say. Mm-hmm. Uh, had maybe Cal Cunningham kept it in his pants in North Carolina 
2020 and had Sarah Gideon in Maine managed to uh, not run a shit campaign against electoral god Susan Collins, Our Lady of <laughs> Perpetual Disappointment. Um, oh, we love her. Love her so oh, yeah. Um, Susan Collins, by the way, this is in my wheelhouse because, of course, the Mainly History podcast. This is an example of, especially in small states, identity politics mattering. Susan Collins huh. is from Aroostook County in northern Maine, and she like goes home every season to go like harvest potatoes. There's a bunch of liberals in Maine who still love Susan Collins because she is as Maine as it gets. Anyway, if the Democrats just had two fucking more seats, if Bill, okay. In 2018, if Bill Nelson in Florida didn't manage after having been elected, been senator for 12 years and nobody in the state knew his name even, had just managed to be one of the only people in the history of the Senate to lose his seat in a year when his opponent's party controlled the White House in a Dem-leaning year, even though the Democrats had usually carried his state and he lost anyway, fuck you, Bill Nelson. Like, how could you throw that campaign away? If we just had two more senators who were willing to go around the filibuster and unlike Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema say, yes, democracy is more important than bipartisanship, uh, this we would not be having this conversation. And what really depresses me yeah. is that if you look at what Joe Biden ran on, and what Joe Biden genuinely was planning to do and what the House has passed, it would have been, considering our narrow majorities, um, maybe not quite as earth shattering as the 2009-10 legislative season, which was real big, if you look back at what they did, um, in some ways just as good. Um, there would have probably been a public option for the Affordable Care Act, um, I'm willing to bet. That's basically what they ran on, expanding it. And that, by the way, is wildly popular because the most popular part of the Affordable Care Act has been the Medicaid expansion. They were going to just basically do that on steroids. Uh, there would have been, uh, with two more votes, I think that there would have been a decent chance that uh, Puerto Rico statehood would become a thing and possibly DC statehood, uh, which yeah. if the Democrats managed to get a trifecta Again, a working trifecta, not this kind of shit. Um, mm. <laughs> that is my prediction of what they're going to do uh, with a working trifecta. With a working trifecta, they're going to get rid of the filibuster if Mitch McConnell is foolish enough to get rid of the filibuster, which is really a, the best thing that has ever existed for the perspective of Republicans, because the things Republicans want to do uh, either do not require 50 votes or do not require 51 votes or are not popular. The Democrats do have the advantage of wanting to do specific popular things, um, uh, including the public option, although not Medicare for, uh, although not putting everybody on public, uh, not taking away people's private health insurance or employer health care coverage, but putting every, giving everybody the option for a public one, among other things. So there would have been, <sighs> we were so close, but we failed. And of course the problem is, is that it looks like we have unified control of government, but for practical purposes, we only barely do. Uh, mm -hmm. and, every, and every time somebody has like some bad sushi in the Democratic caucus, we don't actually have a majority for the week or whatever. Um, and that's, a for, that's unfortunate. So there's that. 
there's yes, the failure to meet the moment. My number one complaint is that after the January 6th uh, mob entered the Capitol uh, and was then rightfully chased out, that the Democrats did not immediately certify the votes and then call an emergency session of Congress without leaving the goddamn building and immediately impeach Trump from while, yeah. while the debris was still on the floor and call yes. a fucking vote while the breath from those fuckers was still steaming up the glass on the windows and call a vote and camp out, camp out and don't leave until mm -hmm. the vote is done. And that was their single most colossal failure, I, I would argue. You're absolutely right. And some of these old farts don't meet the moment. They don't. Um, that is a personal dynamic separate issue than the sort of coalitional stuff that we've been talking about, right? Yeah. Uh, I, I want to be clear. And I think, uh, I think it's really important to separate issues where strategic uh, personal calls are just bad and wrong and need to be criticized versus uh, wish casting that uh, you have votes you don't or you have a coalition that you don't. Um, mm -hmm. And the Democrats, uh, the one, one difference between the Democrats and Republicans is that so conservatives have known for a long time that a lot of what they want is not popular with a raw majority of American voters. Uh, and they don't care. They want to do it anyway. Most, uh, I think most liberal Democrats genuinely believe that there are secret uh, treasure troves of hidden supporters of theirs who are just not voting for some reason. They're being kept from voting or whatever. And that actually... If they could just uh, go out and vote, they could go out harder uh, and really do the, their true, let their freak flag fly and just be balls to the wall uh, in a non-gender specific way, uh, liberal uh, or lefty, that actually the supporters will come. That's the sort of uh, base theory of motivation that like the Sanders campaign had, that mm -hmm. it'll work out. But the problem is, the evidence is just not there. And one evidence, one evidence for that would be for the fact the turnout model is 2020. Uh, before 2020, the assumption was higher turnout will inherently benefit Democrats because the average voter who doesn't turn out is, so people thought, is somewhat more left-leaning on at least on a bunch of issues. And the 2020 was the highest turnout election in 100 years. And it was from the perspective of the, ele the electoral college rather close, um, or sorry, it, yeah, in terms of the, the, the votes in the states, pretty close. And the Democrats lost a bunch of House seats because a lot of Repu a lot of Trump voters showed up who stayed home in 2018. So that theory was exploded. And in a lot of states, it turns out that the people who stay home are not our friends. In Wisconsin, the typical voter who doesn't vote is a middle-aged white person without a college degree who likes social security and doesn't like immigrants. Um, and that is the median voter in a lot of these swing states. Now, this is not me saying the Democrats should turn around and be an anti-immigrant party, but this is the 
this is this is the voting pool that we have. And so if you go out there and say, guess what I'm going to run on? I'm just going to be super liberal. And trust me, you're going to they're going to come. No, they're not. No, no, they're not. There are certain popular things that you can advertise and, and pledge to do for these people and you can keep your promises and that's good. Um, but a successful uh, liberal national uh, campaign is, is probably not going to look like something cooked up by Elizabeth Warren staffers. Uh, and I, I, I pick on Elizabeth Warren, not because I don't like her, because I do, but because she's actually terrible at getting votes. And I think one of the laziest criticisms of this comment is that it's somehow because of sexism. Don't get me wrong. She faces sexism all the time. Um, but if you just look at how she votes versus the generic partisanship of her state, sorry, how how many votes she gets versus the generic partisanship of her state. And then you look at all the other senators. Um, she does. She's one of the worst performing senators that we have. Uh, she should. She's in Massachusetts. She should be winning by like two to one, and she wins like fifty-five percent of the vote. And if you're saying, well, it's because she's a woman and because there's sexism in, of course there's sexism. But are you saying why doesn't that apply to Amy Klobuchar or even Tammy Baldwin, a a lesbian woman who's also quite progressive in Wisconsin, who gets? a greater percentage of the vote than sometimes a Democrat should get in Wisconsin. What is it? So are we saying there's something specifically sexist about Massachusetts? I think not, right? It's because people don't like Harvard professors. It's because people don't like um, certain kinds of, you know, identity, cultural expressions of liberalism, quite apart from gender expression that we can get into. Uh, identity politics means all kinds of things. And I don't mean this in the sort of lazy uh, centrist brain, uh, the college kids are too sen sensitive kind of crap. Like I'm not, I'm not trying to get in that. That's obviously not what I mean. Uh, mm -hmm. so in terms of, but if we're going back to what the Democrats are supposed to do, uh, part of it is yes. Uh, highlight the stuff that we're popular on. Uh, there's a controversial, uh, data analyst named David Shore. Have you talked about him on this excellent podcast? I don't think so. Ah, so David, David Shore, and I'll keep this short. Uh, he has become the avatar of uh, what has been known as now popularism. And it's the, as the, the short answer is, he's a, he's a socialist and he's a, he's a Democrat. Uh, he was famously, uh, he was first known uh, for, he got fired from his uh, data analyst think tank job or whatever by sharing a study during the George Floyd protests that nonviolent protests gain popularity for a cause, violent protests uh, reduce popularity for a cause. Uh, and there were people saying, well, this is explaining to black people how they should protest, la la la, so they fired him. But to his credit, he did not like go on the talk shows and talk about how he's a victim of cancel culture. He still has a job and he's you know perfectly fine. All as well. So what David Shore, uh, what Shore has been arguing essentially is Democrats should highlight the stuff that they stand for that's popular, actually, uh, and not highlight unpopular things. Um, and he talks about how, again, non-college white uh, voters have a disproportionate sway in the Senate and the Electoral College right now. And because Republicans do better with these people, they have an advantage. Uh, and as long as the system continues to be uh, that way. Democrats have to care about that. Uh, so what do you do? You make sure you run on things like, yes, 
uh, lowering the cost of uh, prescription drugs and yes, broadening the safety net. Uh, but you don't, and, and it's not that you don't do the stuff that Democrats now stand for that are progressive. Democrats cannot, even if they wanted to be, Democrats could not become a party that is not pluralistic and for toleration, uh, feminism, uh, shared power, all, all the things we talked about, because that's what our coalition is. The Democratic coalition depends on literally a, a rainbow coalition of everybody, including a still surprising number to people of voters who are whites, who are not college educated and are over the age of 45 and who are not particularly liberal. And so that doesn't mean we should do everything those voters want, but we have to reflect the fact that, again, we're this coalition of everybody. Um, so what does the identity politics look? Sometimes it's little things. So look at John Tester in Montana. He votes exactly how we want him to vote, like 98% of the time. Look at a picture of John Tester. He has a flat top buzz cut. He, has, uh, he works on a beef farm a ranch every weekend on the Canadian border in Montana. Uh, he has like only three fingers on his left hand, thanks to like a cleaver accident or something like that. He wears, I think his entire wardrobe costs like $8. Um, and he like personally knows everybody in his state. He also votes for gay rights and environmentalism. Uh, and, he, and he votes the way we want on uh, election, and, uh, you know, on electoral reform and everything else. Uh, but he also uh, meets his constituents' concerns where they are, and he talks to them how they are. There's also stuff like good politics, right? Um, so there's there's certain ways to you know to talk to your coalition and do things without compromising on the important things. There's also just not bringing up uh, unpopular aspects of what your coalition uh, is going to do. This is uh, a good at a good analogy would be the Republicans running up to the Civil War. The Republicans running up to the Civil War opposed the expansion of slavery. And a number of Republicans, although not all of them, also wanted to extend suffrage to Black men, at least. Uh, and they wanted some degree of civil rights for Black people. Did this poll well, to use, an, uh, to use the term, you know, uh, a, a term that to backwards in time? No, it did not. So what did they do? They didn't talk about it unless they were asked about it. So when people said, what are you going to do for me? They said, I'm against slavery and I'm going to help you with jobs and blah, 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 blah. And then they still went ahead and voted on those things that they believed in. But they didn't say when somebody said, what are you going to do for me? Then they said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to, I'm going to expand the franchise so that people of all races and creeds can vote even if that's what they believe. So they just didn't highlight the unpopular side of what they were going to do. Um, and so there's something to be said for uh, how do you, you know, don't be a dumbass and, 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 and politic like an idiot, like, you know, th there's a difference of, is this cowardice? I'm not saying don't tell, don't be, be honest and tell people what you're going to do and say why you're going to do it. Uh, you know, Pete Buttigieg, I can't believe I'm praising him, has been doing the rounds uh, on Fox News saying how like, yes, uh, I don't believe that the government should be regulating abortion. And so you're talking about late term abortions. Sure. Let's talk about what that looks like uh, when women find out that their kid is going to be born without a skull uh, and that this is going to endanger their health. Do you think that uh, that the government should be making that call? You know, all the rest of those things. There's, of course, ways to doing this. Um, but in terms of 
the Democrats being a red meat throwing base appeasing ideologically coherent party like the Republicans, uh, I think it, it's very difficult for the coalition to allow it right now because we don't have that same kind of that coalition um, for better and for worse. I think that leads to my uh, question, which is if you, if you take a historical perspective, of course, the Democrats are a hodgepodge of diverse groups. We, we know this, but so are the Republicans. I mean, yes. like to a lesser extent, but yes. You just mentioned suffrage and, and uh, abolition and, you know, in the, in, the, in the Civil War period. I mean, you can go to the 1910s, and the, the, the progressive energy, the progressive party itself mainly came from Republican, Republican energy led yes. by Republicans, uh, Theodore Roosevelt. It's an, it's an ideological and intellectual cleavage that happened within the Republican Party. And yes. They, they, what they did is they, they got rid of those people. They created a, a politics around a set of ideas in the 1920s, and they were able to dominate politically and, and they still had some of those people in the party, but they emphasized certain things. And then you go to uh, the, the post-war period, right? Republicans, are, they, keep, they keep losing elections with these liberal Republicans because of the, the strength of the New Deal coalition and, and, and all this. And then they look at the, the civil rights legislation. Uh, many, many Republicans were pro-civil rights, um, but yes. they look at what's happening uh, because of the, the, the civil rights legislation and the energy in the Democratic Party, and they create the Southern strategy, right? But, you know, Nixon created a Southern strategy, but Nick, Nixon in 1960 was to the left of most of the Democratic Party on civil rights. But he was creating a, a coalition in order to serve certain specific things. And in order to do that, certain other things had to be de-emphasized in the party. So those things would be emphasized. Many of the, the kinds of politicians, you know, the Eisenhower, Nelson Rockefeller type politicians left the party, right? Some of them stayed, but then you have a coalition for the kinds of economic specific politics that you have in, in, 19, in the 1980s under, under Reagan, right? In order to do specific things. So there is a, there is, a, uh, there has been a wide diversity of Republicans. Party. Yes, like they made the effort to certainly de-emphasize certain things about them in order to get certain things done. And, and I also think that there, there is an example, although the abortion, the abortion thing is uh, makes this quite dif a difficult argument to make. But the post nineteen eighties Republican Party presidents and all had failed actually in instituting social conservative policies. They have them because- you That's know, correct. On school prayer or on abortion itself, you know, they weren't serving this coalition. And, and many of the, those people were dispirited while they were getting, you know, there was a lot of tax cuts under, under Reagan, um, you know, they pushed Clinton to um, not, not increase taxes by that much, tax, you know, uh, Bush, family um, tax cuts and all this. Uh, and so they de-emphasize certain things, even certain things that they do talk. You, you go to Bush Republicans and they, they're, conser they're conservatives. Those Reagan Republicans, they're conservatives in social, on social issues, but they're not even putting radically socially conservative people on the court, right? 
So they emphasize certain things. With the Democrats right now, they they want everything, both uh, socially and, and liberally and economically, and it's, it's quite pluralistic and that's great. But sometimes the Democrats functioned quite well, and I think the New Deal period is, is a great example of this, when they did de-emphasize certain things about the coalition, brought in some, some people that they, they you know, the peop, you know, people in, in New York, liberals in New York wouldn't like, and were able to win on certain big ticket things that had benefited yeah. everyone. So I think the Democratic coalition is, is wide, it's diverse. But I do think like with Democrats and, and with left wing people uh, in general, especially because the party has become more liberal, you know, post 68, there is a tendency to think that de-emphasizing certain things is like religiously wrong and that you yes. can't do any politics if they do that. But the Republicans have been diverse, but they have de-emphasized things at their own cost at certain times but to their own benefit certain And that is a problem. I think you're right that part, this is part of the problem of uh, when liberals think that their ideas are more popular than they are, that makes them bring them up when it doesn't necessarily help. Um, so one thing I should have clarified when I meant diversity too, like, so the Republican party historically, and this is all the way through even today has historically been, uh, overwhelmingly native-born American, uh, white Protestant, uh, non-urban. And when you look at that, that has been fairly consistent, uh, even with some you know, changes on the issues and whatnot. Now there has been, of course, there are now, especially today, well, there were with the important caveat of they were by and large the party of African-Americans eligible to vote uh, for much of their history up until at least the, the 1936 election um, and even significantly afterwards. But yes, um, in terms of in terms of these emphasis, I think I think you're right. And one of the things I met about emphasis is yeah, so the Republicans cut uh, cut taxes for rich people every time they're in power, no matter what, always. Uh, they never say that's what they're doing, but that's what they do. They say we're cutting taxes for everybody. Whose taxes do they cut? Overwhelmingly rich people's every single time. Do they run for office saying we are going to cut rich people's taxes, vote Republican? No, but they do it anyway. Democrats can do that for all kinds of things. You can support all kinds of things that don't have majority support because they're the right thing to do and just don't talk about it unless you're asked to. And then you say, well, we support everybody's rights. Oh, so this means you're going to let blah, blah, blah. Yes, because we support all Americans' rights. Moving on. Um, all right. So hang on. You had a uh, Toby, you had an earlier comment though about. Oh, it's yeah. like a, about Republicans um, cutting some of the. Oh, sorry. The Southern the, strategy. I'm sorry. So okay. we should also clarify for the Southern strategy. It started before Nixon. Uh, there was a Southern strategy that really picked up. Eisenhower actually started it. Um, and it, it had the first kind of real inklings of it. Uh, really in the 1930s with some discomfort with FDR uh, by the end of the 1930s. And so it really has a long, it has a long uh, history that way. Um, 
But we should also, in fairness to saying why, why the Republicans voting for Republican, to Vaughn's earlier point about what's holding them together, uh, there is economic stuff besides, you know, taxes for rich people and, you know, all the rest and, and the social stuff. Uh, it's been pointed out the Republicans are very much the party now of the econ of economic kind of status quo. So the party of fossil fuel extraction, if you look at the states, uh, they're in a kind of big L shape from the Dakotas all the way down to Texas and then across through like Louisiana and the parts of Appalachia. A, there's a huge number of, of jobs that revolve around coal and oil and, and oil refinery and all the rest. And there's just really dollars and cents reason why, uh, for example, the new environmental chain uh, legislation is going to be really unpopular with a lot of people in those states. I'm not saying that the legislation isn't necessary, but that is a economically rational purpose that uh, Republican policy positions are serving in those states. Uh, Trump very much uh, as president was the party of economic kind of has-beens or status quo, uh, saying, well, I'm going to support uh, coal miners. I'm going to support uh, truckers, but we're not going to talk about you know self-driving trucks anymore, right? We're going to talk about existing industry and protecting it. We're going to talk about tariffs and protecting existing jobs. Uh, also, the, Repub uh, the Republican Party is very much the party of wealthy people who depend on, uh, well, quite honestly, small businesses and industries that rely on pliable, low-wage laborers, basically industries that sell low-profit margin stuff. Uh, so this is very different than like uh, the, the industries that are much more likely to run democratic. So think like Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley, uh, you're selling iPhones and all that stuff. Your employees are often uh, a lot of higher salary, you know, tech design people who themselves are high education, high earning. And the reason why uh, Republicans are all worried about what they call woke capital. A lot of it is just the employees at Google are overwhelmingly liberal. Uh, but anyway, uh, so Google, yeah, Google doesn't want its employees to unionize, but Google is less concerned with, say, minimum wage laws or very minimal sort of labor regulation stuff, because that's that's not what affects their bottom line, at least domestically. Now, overseas is different. Uh, in the U.S., though, there's all kinds of restaurant owners. If you own a Chili's franchise, if you own uh, a car dealership, if you own, you know, a tomato farm, if you own all kinds of other uh, all kinds of other basic goods, uh, if you own a Home Depot, right? If you're a Home Depot franchisee, you rely on large numbers of workers who are low wage and you sell stuff that is not high profit margin. And so those people have a very uh, concrete reason to vote Republican and they have for a long time uh, because they want to, uh, they don't want the government meddling in their control over their workforce. I'm not trying to say that I, you know, agree with them. Uh, but this is one of those things of competing goods. Americans love small businesses. Everybody likes to support small businesses. Uh, me too, but it's also an unsexy truth that if you like supporting small businesses, probably that mom and pop store, that term everybody loves down the street, they rely on some high schooler part-timer, or they rely on some you know, college kids or some really low wage help to keep the business going. Can they afford to pay them really well? Probably not. 
Uh, how are they affected by the minimum wage laws? They don't like it, that kind of thing. Those people vote Republican too. Uh, and so when you look at, uh, honestly, the Trump corporation is a small business by the definition of how many people it employs. It mostly contracts out. Um, and in this expansive uh, definition in how, by the way, Republicans are talking about it. When they talk about small business owners, that's what they mean. They don't mean poor people or mom and pop. They also mean you own a car dealership or something like that. Uh, and that's who they're, that's who they're talking to. Uh, so there are those other non, uh, non sort of glamorous reasons why these people uh, vote Republican. And yeah, there's a really depressing historical analog to this where it was these sort of uh, local gentry, as well as sort of middling sorts who, yes, support, uh, who supported fascist parties in Europe uh, in the 1930s. Last thing I just wanted to say in regards to Vaughn's point about Neville Chamberlain and appeasement, I think it's unhelpful to make Nazi comparisons, not because I like Trump and not because I don't think the Republicans are uh, taking a fascist turn, only that there's many flavors of fascism. Uh, and even uh, and even the Republican flavor is not going to look like Nazism. And that will, uh, I think if we make the bar for uh, avoiding the worst that low, it's going to make it easier for us to miss when managed authoritarianism and like Orbanism and other forms of fascism arrive on American soil. And so uh, in general, I think we should totally be talking about Orbanism and other forms of strongmanism or Francoism, uh, because fascism in America will not result in death camps. It will 100% result in death, and it will 100% result in oppression and all kinds of other stuff. It's just not going to look as dramatically, you know, black and white. If we're waiting for the Nazis to show up, the fascists are going to be over and won before anything like that happens. It's way too easy to rally against Hitler and Nazis, right? Oh, I agree with that. I the the point of that comparison is that that appeasement as a policy, which right. it is of of conceding yes. political yeah. ground has been what the Democrats have been doing for the last 30 years and conceding to the yes. right so frequently. That's that's the comparison I'm making. You're right. Um, You're right. I I don't think it's incredibly far fetched, though, to think about internment camps because we've done that before. And that's true. We are oh, currently- I didn't say in. I'm sorry. I said death camps. I, they, they'll yeah, be no, internment no. camps for sure. There will be yeah. internment camps. That's the yes. bar. There already yeah. are. Yes, there already yes are. exactly right. Yes. So I, I think some, I think Nazism isn't the only comparison to look at, yeah. but I think we should be looking at European fascism from yes. the 30s and everything in a very wide context of if we have any appeasement, they can do any of these things. They won't necessarily do all of these things, but they could. And we have that perspective now, especially knowing that that Trump's plans are actually a playbook of how to go about this. And it is step one of almost any fascist ruler to replace everyone with your own uh, sycophants. So, yes, I think I think we shouldn't rule out anything, but we should look at everything critically, if that makes sense. Like, I'm not I'm not arguing for a nazis or bust kind of thing but appeasement as a as a policy has been the democratic kind of mainstay in the last 30 years for a lot of good reasons that you've 
named and the difficulties that they face and how, as you said, Republicans are playing politics on easy mode and Democrats definitely are not. But they're still appeasing ground. There's and- one good reason I didn't mention, and I think I, it, it needs to be. And that is uh, the charitable interpretation of this. And this, by the way, the first time we see it was in the 1980s uh, with the Iran, the Iran-Contra scandal with Reagan, where the Democrats did not impeach Reagan over Iran-Contra because they did not want to establish a precedent by which a Republican president has a scandal and then gets impeached. And they, they thought that would politicize it too much. But then more, uh, more recently, the, the Democrats have genuinely tried to, the Democrats are the party, they try to be the party of good government and the system working. Mm-hmm. And the system yes. doesn't work if it is perceived to be partisan uh, or corrupt or whatever. And of course, that's the true poison of, of Trump and Trumpism is that it politicizes everything. And of course, that's well-trod ground. But so the Democrats are trying super duper hard to not set precedents of politicizing or, or turning the, the justice system into a, a, a politicized kind of personal weapon in the way that you know Trump was clearly trying to do. And so this desperate attempt to essentially maintain the system by respecting its nonpartisanship has led to this, as you point out to sometimes what comes off as, and sometimes is appeasement. Uh, The Democratic, I mean, it's really pathetic how even among just Democratic voters, who are the heroes to a lot of the most vocal MSNBC watching moms in the years of Trump? Their heroes are all Republicans. James Comey, the FBI has never had a Democrat at its head, ever, ever. Uh, Almost every heroic figure in the age of Trump who has opposed Trump has been a Republican. Uh, I don't even, I don't know what party Anthony Fauci is. Uh, I don't care, but he's a hero, right? Everybody who they, they love. Comey, uh, who was that other guy? Robert Mueller, Republican. Robert Mueller, uh, yeah. The Democratic hero who comes in is invariably the referee or the manager who's coming in to save the day and say, sorry, uh, time out, you guys broke the rules. And that's what, uh, and that's what a lot of senior Democratic party leaders have tried to do as well. Because, look, the Republicans have already gone there with the lock her up chance and the threats of jailing and everything else. And one thing that I respect about Biden and his administration trying to do is to not go down that road, because once you do it, you just can't undo it. And so there's a very fine line between holding these assholes to account and having things, you know, uh, become politicized. And yes, the Republicans are going to say it's politicized no matter what. And I think the balance has gone too far, but it is very tricky to have, to have only one party of rules and standards that that's not sustainable. Um, and there's a sort of limited amount of time. And the last thing, the analogy we should be looking to is less European fascism and more America during, uh, the years after reconstruction when white supremacist yeah. terrorists took over the south and actually had coups in wilmington north carolina and elsewhere the united states has only really been a true democracy uh in any uh in a pluralistic sense everywhere from 1965 on and 
the decision that I'm most worried about getting overturned, some of the voting stuff, I think it's gross, but it gets overhyped. Uh, some of the stuff about voter IDs at the polls, yeah, we can care about that. Uh, what I'm really worried about and what serious scholars are worried about, uh, even more serious professionals than me, are things like the, the state legislation that's going to give partisan control over county vote counters. Yeah. Like that's the stuff. And worst of all, if this Supreme Court overturns the Baker decision of 1962, uh, which colloquially resulted in the one person, one vote standard, that is what made uh, malapportioned districts everywhere except the U.S. Senate unconstitutional. And if that gets overturned, that is what we're going to see a return to crazy Jim Crow uh, mm -hmm. stuff. Um, and the, the, the final thing I'll say, flipping over to, to Toby's point about the, well, during the Clinton, the Reagan years and then the Clinton years and what the social conservatives were doing, we see also, it was the nineties when the Republican party really became Southernized in terms of Southern evangelicals really taking it over. And that's when you saw suburbanites and white non-religious folks begin to flee the party. Uh, and that that departure really completed, arguably, in 2016 and 18. Um, and in some places, the bottom hasn't fallen out of the tub for Republicans. But we see those sort of coalitional shifts. And so uh, it was that sloshing around of the coalitions that has then allowed, you know, liberals and secularists to do more in the Democratic Party uh, after 2000 or so than, than before. Ian, the last question I had, had for you today was kind of looking forward and the how the Democratic Party, both structurally and on a sort of personal level with who's here today and who's will be here in the near future, how they deal with some of these big issues that we've talked about, be that the removal of voting rights, be that climate change and the disasters that are happening there, be that the rise of fascism, and, and be that the fact that the younger Gen Z generations, from what we understand, seems to be more willing to stand up for their rights on and not accepting off things like climate change and maybe further left than, than generations before them. How do you think the Democratic Party will deal with both the bigger tasks and bigger risks that are heading towards America and, and the global world, while also at the same time a potentially shifting demographic from the younger voters compared to what has been the establishment before them? So those are good questions without a, a fully inspiring answer, but I will try. So first of all, um, Democrats need to, um, especially in the, they need to learn from the Republicans and they started to do this after Trump was elected and get, uh, stop being completely myopically focused on the national government. Politics matters at all levels, of course, but the conservative movement uh, was a grassroots movement that took over counties, school boards, everything from the 1950s and 60s onward. And so many Democrats for so long, uh, and Obama's years were the worst, uh, Democrats were convinced that, well, I vote for president and I pay attention to like the White House and that's what really matters. Um, and there's so much stuff, no matter who's president. And even, even if really 
even if really bad stuff happens, uh, and even if the worst case scenarios are averted, a lot of action has always happened at the state level. And Democrats need to get their heads out of their asses and stop having DC brain 24 seven and pay attention to a lot of local stuff. Um, and this is where uh, different coalitions matter. So one of my closing thoughts is that, and I, when I teach political parties to my students, I always say like, look, political parties in a two party system country like this one, that and until it changes, are, your coalition is always going to be comprised of people who at best annoy you. Um, and these are uh, these are coalitions of convenience to get stuff done that you agree on and you don't agree on everything. The Democratic coalition is full of NIMBY suburbanites who annoy me uh, to, to the ends of the earth. And at the local level, I support politicians who oppose them. And we, we argue over zoning and, you know, all kinds of other things and policing and whatever else. Um, but so the Democrats need to uh, focus their energy, not just on national mobilization or continuing it, but also on specific local issues. Um, and that, uh, and a lot of the issues that concern, especially the rising generation and even, uh, uh, you know, the millennials, Issues like affordable housing uh, and, you know, employment and quality of life in cities or wherever people live, these are state and local issues. Uh, and those elections just don't get nearly enough attention. A lot of this is the structure of our dying newspaper, uh, you know, press industry and everything. And that's a separate issue, uh, but it's sadly related. Okay. So part of it is that, uh, so, right? Uh, young people not being able to afford housing or anything else that. Uh, most statistically, uh, that's an issue that, yes, uh, the Biden administration or, or any other Democratic presidential administration could do some things on. Uh, but honestly, that's that's even bigger something that it's going to be an issue for state uh, and local governments. Right. Um, and so and same with during the Trump administration, you get these, you know, these cities and states cooperating on environmental policies and everything else. We're going to we are likely entering or continuing this era of highly polarized politics of closely contested elections that are going to uh, until something changes. Uh, and so Democrats need to be firing on all cylinders and uh, redoubling the good efforts taken during the Trump years of the mobilization at the, at the local level. In terms of young people, this is where uh, look, I said that you can't assume everybody agrees with you. This is where something that Democrats really should be aware that their risk is not that young people are necessarily going to vote Republican, but that they are going to stay home or not vote Democratic uh, in the future. Because um, a lot of the scholarship on partisan behavior indicates that most people's voting patterns are formed uh, before they turn 35 or so. And so it's and they vote kind of in age cohorts. Not obviously not everybody, right? And there are, you know, there's there's plenty of individuals who change their minds over their lives, but by and large. So this means that uh, the left-leaning generation is ripe for the Democrats to make sure they lock down uh, the the loyalty and support of these voters. Young voters also notoriously just don't vote as frequently as older voters. This is something that is seemingly a universal feature in industrialized democracacies uh, they're just they more they're more likely to be mobile they're more likely to be less tuned into these things 
Uh, hopefully that's something the Democrats can work on changing. Uh, so that does mean maybe, yes, if you're going to take certain stands that maybe don't con command majority popularity, uh, but they're important in principle, make sure that some of those stands are ones that resonate with young people. And especially if there's ways you can deliver, however ways, you know, treat young people the way Republicans treat rich people who want their taxes cut, uh, at least a little bit, right? Um, and, and that might go a long way. Uh, but the, you know, the, the longer term, there is no, there is no one weird trick. There is no one fix, uh, because the Democrats are right now, they are the party of cities, uh, and liberals and in the industrialized world, liberal cities uh, and cities just about everywhere are, are more liberal than the surrounding countryside in first past the post voting systems, cities have reduced political influence. There's a great book on this called why cities lose. It's a very on point title there, and I recommend it uh, to your listeners. Uh, and it's a it's a very great just sort of depressing tour of the numbers. And so this means, yeah, the Democrats can't afford to be sloppy or stupid or or anything else. And yes, they need to take the threat seriously. Uh, and if Reconstruction and um, uh, the react the white supremacist reaction to it is our guide uh, to borrow. Uh, a bit from Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address, uh, we actually need a bit of malice towards some. And we do need to have to realize you can't compromise with crazy. Uh, don't talk down to the voters, but that doesn't mean uh, that you need to compromise or appease Rudy Giuliani or uh, Kevin McCarthy or you know uh, the crooks uh, who make up much of the Republican caucus. Uh, and so there's there's ways to do that. So yeah, don't be stupid. And just sorry, quick follow up on that. In your opinion, do you think the Democratic Party and specifically the DNC, like do you, do you see them having the appetite to um, be more aggressive in the short term with the obstacles they're facing and the the potential threats facing America? And how difficult do you think that is when the leadership is so old? Um, and um, as you said before, we're kind of being led by people who are, you know, predating the wheel. Sure. So, I mean, there is a there is a rising crop of, of, of figures in the party who are not old and who who do get it. Uh, and I mean, there are a number of reasonably popular Democratic governors like Gretchen Whitmer, who survived a uh, kidnapping mm -hmm. attempt by kooks yeah. and who does all the things Democrats want of our leadership in a swing state. Uh, there's actually this like now hilarious, semi-ironic cult following for Dem uh, Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker, who has pleasantly surprised almost all liberals. Uh, he's this rich guy who became uh, from some super rich family who became governor of Illinois in 2018. And he ran by just saying, I'm going to do all these liberal things because I'm a Democrat and we're a liberal state. And he became governor and he did them. And it's great. Um, he's a great example of why the filibuster sucks. He basically is what everybody thought Joe Biden was going to be, quite honestly. Like, eh, are you like, are you proud that you voted for him? Are you, do you brag about being a fan? No. Uh, but do, do, do they do the things that you want them to do, even if it's not maybe quite as much? Yes. Right. So there's Pritzker. There's Jared Polis in Colorado. There's plenty of people who, who get it. 
uh, and are not uh, who are not approaching or in their their 80th decade. I think, unfortunately, uh, if if past is prologue, so I think the best case scenario for the Democrats would probably be they they're almost certainly going to lose the House in November. They might manage to hang on to the Senate uh, because the Republicans nominate just enough kooks and things might get just enough better for the Democrats that they can fart one out um, and, and pull this off. Um, and if they do, they might be able to confirm more judges and perhaps the Republic. I mean, the problem is people have been talking about the Republican fever breaking ever since the 2010 midterm. Uh, so I don't see it breaking anytime soon. Uh, I think the problem is that appetite, more and more actual Democrats are waking up to this uh, this crisis. Uh, I think one of the things that's going to depend on how people react is if we see if we see uh, uh, the crappy states, uh, sorry, crappily governed states uh, pass laws that are uh, redolent of the uh, the fugitive slave clause type things for women seeking abortions out of other states. If you start seeing that stuff pass, um, I think you're going to get an even further kind of enraged base of a uh, number of people in the Democrats who demand more out of their leaders. Uh, I think that unfortunately, if you're asking, are we going to get unified control of government by a democratic party who gets it before a loss? No, we're not. Uh, so we are at the very, the, the sort of best case scenario is somehow, uh, the Democrats lose the house and then, uh, their, their leadership is replaced by people who are not so old or complacent and get it. And we somehow managed to get another trifecta uh, led by people who get it without an intervening Republican administration. Uh, is that statistically likely based on the outcome of American elections? No, um, but all kinds of random things uh, have happened in the past that change patterns and stuff. And so never, never be sure what, what's gonna happen and, you know, uh, and what you're going to know. I think the, I think the party is waking up the leadership, sorry, and, and more and more people than ever before. Um, I think the problem is that there's a lot of, there's enough median voters who just are still conditioned to view things as not that different. Um, and a little bit of this is the Democrats being the party that cried wolf. Um, and you know, they have, Joe Biden, uh, there's always a track of Joe Biden saying something terrible on everything. Uh, and I remember he had this really gross pander in the run up to 2012 uh, when he said uh, something along the lines and he was riffing on words and he was speaking to like the NAACP or something. And he said, Mitt Romney and the Republicans, uh, oh, he said the Democratic Party or maybe the Republicans used to remove you from the chains of slavery. And he said, now the Republicans want to put y'all back in chains. Like, come on, man, fuck you. Like, what are you doing? Like, and so if you say that kind of crap every year, uh, it's, it's hard to, you know what I mean? Like, it's hard to take it seriously. And here's the other thing about coalitions. The Democrats can't just run on, hey, we're the party that's not racist. Because guess what? Racism is really popular, even among a lot of people who check Hispanic or Asian on the census box. And so 
American fascism is going to include the support of people who you might think code as non-white. Okay. Um, and so that's not enough saying that like we're anti-racist, never mind that we trip over our own dicks and we haven't been able to like get you a job uh, or, or do anything else that works. And so my fear, my fear for the Trump presidency was that he was going to be like a racist New Deal and do a bunch of economically popular stuff. And I'm really happy he fucked up and didn't do it because if he did, that would that would be that would be it. a racist New Deal would be very popular, um, a racist version of the New Deal to some where, where they just do what would happen if the Republicans got in power and said, OK, uh, we're going to do we're going to write off. Uh, a bunch of student debt, except for illegals. Uh, we're also going to do a bunch of uh, a modified healthcare thing, except for illegals. And oh, by the way, gay marriage is done. But you know, and all these other things. Like the Democrats would be in an almost impossible situation electorally. Uh, and if you're telling me you have a good answer to that, you're you're lying. There's not a good answer to that electorally. There's not. Um, there might be, and this this leads me to my final question. Which oh, I'm sorry. Um, if the demo, if the Republicans had the votes and put that up, that's what I'm saying. Sorry. Uh, if if a racist New Deal was offered in a in a uh, as opposed to nothing, mm, that's scary. Uh, and that's what fascism would probably look like in the United States. Uh, go ahead, Simon. Sorry. Sorry. My my very final question, just because we're we're touching on the future of the Democratic Party, I have to ask: Are you part of the K Hive, Ian? Oh God, no. So, well, oh, okay. Oh, that's hang unfortunate on. Me, to hear. Oh wait, no, no. Let me let me clarify. I actually. Um, so what bothers me about the K Hive is that, like, I I liked Kamala Harris at first. My problems with her is that she's shallow, uh, and that she used her limited time. In the national spotlight, uh, she said she supported uh, public health care for all, I think, without really thinking about it, and then backtracked, uh, which, by the way, uh, supporting it was mathematically stupid. It was basically the only position a Democrat could take uh, in 2020 that would be a loser electorally. But anyway, she backtracked. And then she also used her limited time to talk about, uh, we need to get Donald Trump kicked off of Twitter, because that's what Americans really care about. And when I said things to, uh, to this nature to a, a friend of mine who was a member of the K-Hive, this was in an online setting, uh, his friends said, well, Ian, you need to listen to Black women. And this was in like, I don't know, uh, August of 2019. And I said, oh, so I guess that means I have to vote for Joe Biden. Because by the way, that these people were all white. I was like, because if I'm listening to what black voters want, they're supporting Joe Biden. Black people aren't supporting for Kamala Harris. So please don't ventriloquize these people. Like who you like. Uh, and like, So anyway, the K-Hive is very frustrating in its substance-lessness uh, to, to that extent. Uh, I don't have a problem with Kamala Harris in the sense that uh, anybody who wants to replace Joe Biden on the ticket has to be aware that the most likely candidate for that is going to be Kamala Harris. So if you think you can get rid of both of them, uh, I, I don't know what you're on. Uh, that must be a lot of fun and I'd like to try some, but that will be very difficult. Um, and so uh, there are reasons why I would not want either of them at the top of the ticket in 2024. Um, however, that would be historically like unprecedented. 
And whoever led the Democrats in 2024 would almost certainly lose if Harris and Biden were not one of them at the top of the ticket and their absence at the top of the ticket was not due to them both uh, being assassinated or dying in a party barge accident or something like that. So maybe my, if Joe Biden didn't seek reelection uh, or I don't wish him ill, but you know, if he statistically died and then Kamala Harris became president before 2024 and then did something that was popular, I'd be cool with that. Um, right now she's just as unpopular. She's less popular than he is, if that's possible. Uh, I have a hard time understanding why other than really depressing explanations for that. Uh, why, what is, what is this show's op- opinion of, of the K hive and Harris herself? So I, I, for quite a while now, um, myself and probably <laughs> the rest of the co-hosts, we're pretty sure she's going to be working at a regional college within the next couple of years. <laughs> That's, so, that's not true that's not true I mean, well, that's I, what i'm thinking i'm thinking by 2025 she'll be yes yeah, so that's funny famously me and simon did a uh, a podcast with someone who went to my university and we were quite um quite happy to talk about the merits of kamala harris's candidacy back in you know 2020 and, and all this but yeah it has been really depressing as a communicator i think she's failed but yeah. i i, I thought be- she'd be good no, I thought she would be really good, but yeah. I agree with you to the extent that a, a democratic candidacy that bypasses Biden and bypasses Kamala Harris is going to be incumbent from, from its very beginning. And it's, it would be unprecedented yes. and it's going to be very, very, it's just going to be very, very difficult. Some people are, are I think, overly uh, enthusiastic about like, um, piling on on her but i don't think it's healthy for the party at all and i don't think any and it would be a very strange circumstance if either of the two of them were the candidate i think and they there's there's still plenty of time for course correction for both of them uh i mean i genuinely am worried about biden's age i was before i could not watch the debates with trump i was always afraid that biden was just going to absolutely sundown and it was just too stressful for me Plus, seeing Trump talk is just bad for my health. Um, but Harris, yeah, if she had a chance to do things that end up being popular, uh, she's a reasonably capable person and human being. Um, there's nothing. I think that there's 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 a perfectly plausible scenario in which she ends up being uh, at least close to as popular as a generic Democrat, and in a year when that's all that you need that's what we need uh in 2024 that might be what we need if it's if it's donald trump versus generic democrat a generic democrat will almost certainly win uh the problem is it's never a generic democrat who wins right it's always a person um so yeah but these people indulging in fantasies about like let's replace her with like you can just swap out like it's a baseball team or something like please uh although the absolute worst political take anybody has this sort of tell me you don't understand politics or listen to anybody or respect black people without telling me this uh, is Michelle Obama, who her number one thing she has said since the first time she ever stepped onto the stage is I hate being in the spotlight and I hate politics and I will never, ever, ever run for political office. I won't do it. Thank you. Here's my husband. And all these people 
who say, let's have Michelle Obama run for something Um, Mm. as though being the wife of the president and then making it your major fixture saying, I hate this and we'll never do it. Like, what the hell is wrong with you people? Stop it. Um, There are other, I like her personally. Everybody likes the first lady. That's the whole point of being the first lady is you are an apolitical figure who kisses babies and your cause is something anodyne like kids should read. Uh, And that's always my ultimate test of how blatantly partisan are you is do you unreasonably hate the first lady with an asterisk of Melania Trump? I don't know what the fuck her deal. I mean, online bullying is obviously uh, like you'd have to, I need to be convinced that wasn't a purposeful troll. Um, but let's, let's bracket her, right? Like every other, even Laura Bush. I mean, uh, you know, I think George W. Bush was maybe along with Trump, you know, the most destructive president of the, the modern era. Laura Bush was fine. You know, she wanted kids to read. If you hated Laura Bush, I don't know what to do with you. Right. Like as a person. So anyway. Um, probably my biggest takeaway from all that, Ian, is that you managed to use the phrase uh, statistical death, which I think is what we should be using going forward when statistical uh, what? You, I think you said statistical death. That might be something that happens to Biden, you know, like it's a statistical thing rather than like a, a personal thing that sort of happens. Oh, right. Um, like the t- statistical best case or yes. Sorry. Yeah. Yes. So mm-hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he might he might just statistically die rather than actually die, which I think yeah. Is- oh, statistical death. I'm sorry. Yes. yes, correct. Yeah, I don't. I think it's you know I think it's rude and impolite to wish for death for anybody, except Donald Trump, who I want to die. I don't want him to be assassinated for, uh, for like political st- like you know assassination is wrong. Don't do it. Um, I think that it's his fault. A lot of people are dead, and I hope he dies. But just like generic, like falling down the stairs on camera in a really embarrassing way, um, in a way that can't be chalked off to a conspiracy theory. I think he deserves it, but that's the only one. Um, yes, I think that, you know, otherwise it's just ghoulish to sort of be wishing for death. But yes, yeah, statistically, if he dies, you know, that would be unfortunate for his family and the country to a certain degree. And then, yeah. At least we get to hear Kamala Harris speak more, which would be entertaining. Um, True. <laughs> uh, Vaughn, have you got anything else you'd like to to ask or, or, or say before we finish up here? Um, Other than your prediction I, on which college Kamala will be working at. Oh, right. Kent State. Um, no, I Oh, think, irony. Irony. <laughs> yes. I think um, this has been a really, really interesting episode and it has definitely given me a lot of things to think about um, and maybe a bit of concessions to give to the Democrats. But I'm never going to stop dunking on them. And nor should you. Yeah, no, exactly. That's it's a call of patriotism to criticize your government is the number one thing that we should be doing is criticizing our government and the people who stand to represent us uh, because they are political or public servants and they serve the public. But um, no, I think this has been really interesting and it'll be morbidly interesting to see what happens in the next couple years um i if this my main takeaway here is that it's really fucking grim that 21st century democrats are doing an okay job compared to other places Uh and compared to republicans because they're not doing a good job no they're not at all 
They're doing a really piss poor job and it's fucking infuriating constantly. And to just like, if, if the DOJ doesn't hand down any convictions on the back of January 6th, like I don't, I think this would be a different conversation maybe. Um, but yeah, it's really fucking grim that the U.S. Democrats are comparatively doing a good job when they're doing a fucking abysmal job and have been for years. Um, so that's a main takeaway that I'm depressed even more now, but with some concession that I understand better what they're doing. I think the Will uh, Rogers, the Will Rogers statement holds steady. Uh, he was a comedian from the early 20th century. And he said, I am not a member of any political organization. I'm a Democrat. Um, and I think, I think that, uh, I think that sums it up, uh, then as now. Um, and so I encourage everybody out here listening in the United States, uh, you don't have to join a political organization, just register to be a Democrat and, uh, do your bit, make it better. Parties are only as good as the people in them. Mm-hmm. So like, that's the thing I always tell my students. I'm, I, I have, you know, Republican students and I'm like, please God vote in Republican primaries. Like I know you and you are not a human monster. So I would love it if your input shaped, uh, you know, the, what goes into your party so that the, the next bunch of local Republican office holders aren't a bunch of little aspiring Brown shirts. Ugh. Uh, so anyway, Right. Um, we are uh, past the two-hour mark at this point, so I'm thinking we should probably end there. Um, Ian, thanks so much for joining us today. It's been a, a real pleasure talking about um, many things to do with the Democratic Party, which in itself is an achievement. The fact we've been able to talk for two hours and it's still been enjoyable about the Democratic Party. So, well, thank you. They, thank you. We, I'm glad that we were able to give uh, to give the Donkey Party a little bit of uh, a little bit of love, a little bit of attention. Um, and it is, it's true. They are not exceptional, uh, which is in and of itself. Like, I understand why we all talk about the Republicans, but yeah, if you care about America being its best self, go Dem, go Dems. There you go. Okay. Um, from Ian, from myself, Simon, and from, uh, Toby and Vaughn, thank you very much for listening. And we'll have another episode for you in the new future. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.